Hello, readers. Coming up, it's a roundtable discussion on a most interesting problem, what Darwin's descent of man got right and wrong about human evolution. Wanted to give you a heads up about some episodes coming next week. It starts with episode number 100 for this show, and it is a good one. Lisa Feldman Barrett on her new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. That's on Tuesday. And on Thursday, Kevin Dutton joins me to talk black and white thinking, the burden of a binary brain in a complex world. You can check out booksonpod.com for all of our episodes. Give us a follow on Twitter and Facebook to find out when new episodes drop, as well as hearing highlights of previous episodes. That's at booksonpod. This is Dan Lieberman. I'm author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling, and I've totally enjoyed this great conversation. Hello, readers. Today's book is a most interesting problem. What Darwin's Descent of Man Got Right and Wrong About Human Evolution. It was a compilation in terms of a number of different authors contributing chapters to the book, and today's conversation is reflective of that. We have three people on the show today, the editor of the book, as well as two of the contributors, starting with Jeremy De Silva, who is an associate professor of anthropology at Dartmouth, the author of the upcoming book First Steps, How Upright Walking Made Us Human, and the editor of A Most Interesting Problem, What Darwin's Descent of Man Got Right and Wrong About Human evolution. Jeremy, thank you for the time. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks for uh, having us, Trey. Susanna Herculano-Huzel is an associate professor in the Departments of Psychology and Biological Sciences at Vanderbilt, as well as the Associate Director for Communications of the Vanderbilt Brain Institute. She's the author of the 2016 title, The Human Advantage, How Our Brains Became Remarkable, the orator of a 2015 TED Talk about the human brain that's been viewed more than 3 million times, and she contributes a chapter on, you guessed it, the human brain in a most interesting problem. Susanna, thank you for the time. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. And finally, Augustine Fuentes is a professor of anthropology at Princeton. He's the author of three books, Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies They Told You, The Creative Spark, How Imagination Made Humans Exceptional, and the 2019 title, Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. He too contributed a chapter in a most interesting problem having to do with race. Augustine, thank you for the time. How are you? I'm doing okay, you know, hanging in there as everyone else is, or at least trying to. Yeah, right? That's a good way to put it. So I was fascinated by the concept of this book from the first time that I heard about it. Jeremy, for people who are unaware, what exactly is this book? So this book is an opportunity to reflect on Charles Darwin's contributions to understanding of human origins, human evolution, human biological variation, human behavior, on the 150th anniversary of his publication of a book called The Descent of Man. He wrote that book in 1871, and in it, he made a number of interesting claims and hypotheses. And for 150 years, scientists have been testing these ideas, and some of these ideas have actually withstood the test of time and are supported with robust evidence. And some of the ideas that he proposed in this book actually have been refuted and challenged by the evidence that we have in our science now. And so I like anniversaries. I see them as opportunities to reflect on where we've been and where we're going. And so with the 150th anniversary of Darwin's descent coming up, I saw this as an opportunity to gather some colleagues who had an expertise in the topics that Darwin wrote about 
to update the reader on here's what we know now, 150 years after Darwin first speculated on these topics. Was it difficult to figure out which 10 people you wanted to write constructive criticisms on Darwin's writings? So I spent a lot of time on that. I mean, my first thought was that I would try to do this myself. And then that quickly went in the garbage because (laughs) Darwin, he wrote about so much and our field has become just, you know, there are thousands of us now working on these kinds of questions that he asked 150 years ago. So it would have been really naive and presumptuous of me to try to tackle this myself. So what I did was I looked into not only who out there had scientific expertise in the particular topics that Darwin tackled in these chapters, but also who had written popular science books, who had done TED Talks, who were people that not only understood their subject, but could communicate it to the general public and could not only, you know, again, tackle the science of this, but integrate it with social issues that are happening today as well. And and how does this pertain to your life today? And so at that point, once I was able to look at folks that had written scientifically about this and had written for the general public. It actually wasn't that hard at that point to identify individuals who had that particular set of skills. And then I was really lucky because most of the individuals I reached out to thought this was a good idea and signed on. Not everyone lines up to be part of an edited volume. It's it's one of those things that sometimes doesn't quite work out the way we think it's going to, but this one did. This one, I think I was very fortunate to find an all-star group of folks who put together what I think is a really impressive and important volume. Susanna, when did you first read The Descent of Man and what impact did it have on you? To be honest, I had browsed through different chapters at different times, starting probably in in some time in college. I was a biology major, but I only really had the full appreciation of what it was about when I reread the chapters that Jeremy asked me to comment on. And, you know, it's a completely different experience once you have your own body of work under your belt. And I had my own view, let's say, of of the topic. I had had the opportunity to read so many colleagues and their impressions and opinions and evidence as well on that. So it was really interesting to revisit that with a whole new set of eyes and a whole different amount of knowledge and information already in my head. So it looked really, really different. And It was a wonderful opportunity I have Jeremy to thank for having had not only the chance to revisit something that one of our most brilliant biologists wrote 150 years ago. And it's really impressive to see how much Darwin got right with what information he had available then. And even more, I feel honored, really, and privileged to have the opportunity to write on that 150 years later, revisit what he did and especially add to that with what we have learned in 150 years since he wrote all that, because that's the beauty of science. We learn more and with our new facts, with our new knowledge, we have the opportunity to revisit how the available evidence had been interpreted. So the facts remain the same, but it's the stories that we put together that change. And it's really cool to be able to continue the story that Darwin started by 
adding to the parts that he couldn't have known simply because the data were not available, the methods did not exist. So, of course, he didn't have that part of the knowledge. How about you, Augustine? When did you first read The Descent of Man and what did it do to you at the time? Well, I remember reading it in chunks in college and then again as a graduate student with this kind of like awe, right? This was the master, this sort of thing that we all aspired to, to be this kind of scientist. And it's an incredibly impressive work, as Susanna's just pointed out, and as Jeremy noted. But there were a few things in it that made me not uncomfortable, but doubt the veracity of other parts of it. So some parts of it are just really bad. And other parts of her are actually brilliant, which is common for much work. So I remember it left me a little bit wanting and a little confused as to why certain assertions were being made in some cases that were anti-scientific, whereas some of the best and most foundational science was present in other parts of it. And so that sort of stuck with me for a while. And it really influenced me. And it's funny because off and on, I've referred back to different parts of it or different experiences in my writings and my research. And when Jeremy reached out and asked me to tackle chapter seven, which is the races of man, which <laughs> is one of those chapters yeah. that really is not good. Yeah. It was a powerful opportunity to look at what the promise and the incredible power of science that Darwin harvested, and at the same time, the real problems of racism that our societies and histories and cultures embed in us. Susanna, you'd like to add something to that? Yeah, so I think this is really cool that you see here. Augustine and I are obviously talking about different chapters that we were charged with writing. And I think it's really, really interesting to see this, let's say, live demonstration of how science works, and especially science communication. You try to be objective, you try to stick to the facts, but always, and this is inevitable, and it's actually part of what I believe we're charged with doing, there is a distinction to be made between what you have as facts and what is your interpretation of the facts. And of course, when it comes to interpretation, whoever is doing the writing is bringing in all their values and cultural knowledge. And there's a lot of expectations and intrinsic things that are built in, which I think is why it's really, really important to make sure that we always keep track of what is facts and what is interpretation of the facts and what's the story that we tell. And I think that's something else that's so important about this book 150 years later, that we have the opportunity to add the facts that we have learned in 150 years, and then also to revisit the interpretation that was made. And of course, society has fortunately changed enormously. So there's a lot about the interpretation, especially with races and how humans stand compared to others, that it's right time for revisiting those stories. Even with the natural selection, the improvement through natural selection part, that infuriates so much that I'm preparing a whole book just on that, wow. but it contaminated over these 150 years how we think about evolution and how we think about humans and their role in society, this idea that we must have improved and therefore humans must have become the top species, the better than ever anything else. And the logical continuation of that is that there should be better races than others. And the whole thing is just 
so incredibly completely bogus, but it reflects the times when he was writing. Let's go ahead and get into some of the specifics of each of your chapters. Susanna, you tackle Darwin's chapter two, titled Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals. That's how Darwin titled his chapter. What was Darwin's conclusion on the human brain versus other creatures? Darwin's point was actually really impressive for a point that was made 150 years ago, that humans are really just one more primate. We're one more primate species, and with what little evidence was available back then, but it was evidence that pointed very clearly in the direction of there's really nothing qualitatively different about what humans do and how humans think and how we behave compared to other primates, actually most mammals and even birds for that matter. But he built a very compelling argument that humans, with all the mental power that we have, we were still just primates made in the image of other primates. And it's really interesting because if on the one hand, that was, of course, one of the main concepts that Darwin proposed and that biology as a whole bought into. But at the same time, on the other hand, if you look at research in the past two decades about the human brain and what makes us humans, it went entirely the other way. It went the way of figuring out how we humans are special. How are we outliers? How did we come to have genes, which everybody assumes that we must have, that are completely different from everybody else's? So it's interesting that a lot of research has focused then on, yeah, 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 Darwin was right. We're primates. Evolution happens, blah, blah. But we're humans, right? We must be super special. We must have all these genes and differences to everybody else that makes us stand out so much. And so what I could do was review that evidence and also what we've learned from our own work that supports exactly what Darwin was pointing out, that the bottom line is when it comes to what brains are made of and how many neurons you find in brains of different sizes and different species, we humans are very clearly made in the image of other primates. The human brain is a large primate brain. So the question changes then to a really interesting one, which is how did that happen only to us? How come there's only this one species that got the ridiculously large number of cortical neurons that we have and no other primate has. Despite the fact that humans obviously have a higher level of consciousness and subconscious than all other creatures, the basic wiring of the brain is very similar to other vertebrates. And a lot of that has to do with the nervous system being organized in closed loops. How so? Yeah, so that's something that's a lot of research from different fields coalescing into this one understanding that the circuitry is what makes a brain function the way it does. And overall, the basic circuitry of 
uh, mammalian brain is very similar to the overall circuitry of a bird brain. And actually within mammals, primates have a very similar circuitry to all the other species. And again, this has been a field where a lot of time and resources have been invested into trying to figure out what is special about the human brain circuitry that must be different from everybody else's. And you have heavyweights behind that idea. Noam Chomsky is one of them who argue that there has to be something qualitatively different about the human brain that allows us to do all these things. And I think it's fair to say that the facts are that there really isn't. Quantitatively, what we have is that qualitatively, the human brain is very much put together like any generic primate brain is how I like to say this. And what you do have is this massive quantitative difference, but it's really just one more point on the curve. It's just that we managed to afford a huge number of neurons that no other species has. So if you think of the mammalian brain and the cortex in particular as these circuits, let's say these generic circuits that work in a certain way because they are arranged in a certain way in closed loops, as you mentioned, and the neurons are the information processing units, the building blocks, then it makes sense that the more of these units that an animal has, a, a species has, the more processing power that those circuits will have. And that's the proposition here. And this is where I'd like to make clear that there's a difference between the facts and the interpretation. So the facts is <laughs> we have the largest number of these information processing units in any cortex. So you would expect that all else remaining equal, all these circuits being very much organized in the same way with these closed loops that allow you to reprocess information and make associations that didn't really exist out there and work based on them. The more units you have, the more you should be capable of doing. So that's the expectation. So the interpretation then is that that could be a very simple explanation for how come we humans do all the things that we do. We have this enormous amount of processing power simply due to quantitative differences, not qualitative. And then, of course, not only we have all this processing power, but it comes together with longer time to develop and then a longer time to live. So culture and technology and knowledge and transmission from one generation to the next is what naturally follows. And I think that's another part that has been too often forgotten that there's a huge difference between human biology and human culture, which is what we really achieve over time. Despite the fact that the human brain has grown by as much as three times in size over the last two million years, the size of our brain is to scale in comparison to other vertebrates. It's about 2% of our body mass, same as most primates, but the difference does come into the fact that we do have so many more neurons and a lot of that comes down to how the primate brain evolves versus other vertebrates. How does the primate brain evolve in terms of adding to the overall number of neurons versus other mammals? So I think the first thing to point out there is that it turned out, and this is work that we did by 
systematically figuring out how many neurons different brains are made of and then relating that to the size of the brain and to the size of the body one of the things that came out of that was the realization that there is enormous diversity in the relationship between the size of the body the size of the brain and how many neurons you have in the brain and this is in contrast to the previous and still very prominent idea that the bigger an animal is, the bigger its brain must be because it must have more neurons. And the logic there is supposedly that a bigger body requires more neurons, except that it doesn't. And it's interesting because if you ask an engineer, should a bigger body that still has the same shape, like tiny primates and large primates do, should a larger body really require more units to control it, like so many biologists have expected, the engineer will have this very puzzled look on their faces and say, of course not. The layout is still the same. The number of joints is still the same. So no, it really shouldn't matter how many neurons you have. You could still run a gigantic whale-sized body with the same number of neurons that you have in a rat brain. And that should work perfectly fine from the engineering point of view. So the realization there is that there is a lot of diversity. There's a lot of leeway in how brains can be put together in terms of size and numbers of neurons and composition and the size of the body. And then And what we found about the primate brain in particular is that the primate brain gains neurons without the average neuron becoming much bigger, which is really important because it's different from how most other mammal brains gain neurons, which is with the average neuron becoming bigger, the more neurons that they have. So the difference is that the non-primate way of gaining neurons is highly inflationary. You add 10 times the number of neurons and you get a brain that's 40 times the size. But if you're a primate like us, then when you get 10 times the number of neurons, your brain is only 10 times bigger. So it's highly economical in that sense. And one of the many consequences is that you have primate brains that remain fairly small like ours, and yet they have this very, very large number of neurons. And also because they didn't, the brain didn't inflate, it didn't balloon up like other animals' brains did as it gained neurons, it still fits in a fairly small head, which means that a fairly small body is allowable. And there's a lot of advantages that come with a not so large body, starting with you don't need a huge amount of energy, not definitely not as much as an elephant or a whale. Jeremy, what did you enjoy most about Susanna's chapter? Her chapter was fascinating. I love that she was able to take the fundamental idea that Darwin had about brains. And it's useful to take a step back on this and to think about Darwin's strategy in writing Descent of Man. I mean, one of the things that surprised me the most rereading it was that he did tackle brains right away in the second chapter. I mean, the first chapter was laying out comparative anatomy and embryological evidence for evolution in humans, because of course he didn't know about DNA and he didn't have a fossil record like we have now. But brains, wow, that was something that even colleagues of his, like Alfred Russell Wallace, thought this was beyond science. This was something that we couldn't actually understand through an evidence-based understanding of the world. And instead, you know, we had to rely on supernatural explanations for thinking about the brain. So you would have thought that he would build his case and deal with the brain 
and issues of behavior and morality last. And no, he tackles it right away. Chapter two, he says, okay, I'm going to hit brains right away. And so it was bold for him to do that. And yet he didn't have this unbelievable wealth of 150 years of accumulated evidence, like the kind of evidence that Susanna was just talking about that she does in her lab and collects these data and asks these questions that have built on questions that have been compiled over a, a century and a half to help us understand this remarkable organ of ours, but an organ that again is understandable through this lens of comparative anatomy and evolution. And so it was important for me that the tone of the book right away in those first couple of chapters was set, that this is a readable book, an understandable book, and a book that integrates what Darwin knew and uses that really as just the launching point for, but look at what we know now. Look at the extraordinary work that scientists have done the last 150 years to help understand things like the human brain because it's understandable, right? And again, that's one of the things that I think I celebrate about Darwin's work, and there's plenty to critique as well, as I'm sure we'll get to, but I celebrate about his work is that he was able to establish and communicate to folks that the human condition was something that was knowable and understandable through the lens of science. Susanna, you point out that despite the fact that humans have heightened consciousness because of the number of neurons that were possessed, consciousness is not uniquely human. What is the cutoff for animal consciousness with regard to the number of neurons? There isn't one, and there shouldn't be one, just like there isn't a cutoff in uh, the continuum of species and the continuum of human individual variation. I think this is one of those cases where we're always trying to shoehorn this shoebox things into categories. We need categories. That's how our mind works. So we would very much like to have neat categories of these creatures are conscious, these aren't, for amongst other reasons, because of the practical facility that it would give us, like, oh, these creatures are not conscious, so it's okay to kill them and eat them. And I'm for the opposite approach of acknowledging that if you have a system, a nervous system that is organized with these enclosed loops that has associative loops that has the possibility of putting things together and recognizing patterns and relating them to the functioning of the own body and relating what you make happen in the world with what goes on in your in your head, then you're capable of consciousness at, at some level. And it's a hard issue. And there isn't a clear cut black or white answer. And we have to live with that. We have to learn to live with that. There is no line. There's no easy line. Uh, or actually, not even an easy line. I actually believe there is no line between what is conscious and what isn't. So there isn't a line between what's permissible and what isn't. It's on us to make up our minds on what we decide that should be reasonable or acceptable. Susanna, what's the most disagreeable thing Darwin wrote about the human brain? I will say that it's something that he managed to not write or he tried very hard to not write. I think he very clearly 
realize that the logical implication of his argument that evolution is the story of improvement through adaptation by way of natural selection was that, well, first, the human brain was supposedly improved in many ways over other brains. And then the idea that there were all the obvious social implications of what he had, of this improvement through natural selection framework that he laid down. And it's really interesting to see with, in retrospect, how he tried really, really hard to stay clear from those points. He slips here and there and does note how natural selection he proposes leads to improvement and how you could have different species and even different groups or even what they called races be better adapted to this and that and therefore superior to this and that. And it's very interesting to see him sliding down that slippery slope and you can almost see him realizing the danger and also the enormity of the problem that he was getting into. If I remember this right, if I read it right, Darwin was an abolitionist. So he was in principle opposed to the idea that he should be. You would think that he was opposed to the idea that there were superior types of people or even superior species to each other. And yet that obviously clashes with what he was proposing that was this improvement through natural selection. So at many points, it feels like you can see him realizing that he's about to go down this slippery slope and things will go very, very badly. So he just refrains from getting there. And he thinks that by not mentioning it, maybe hopefully nobody will notice, but then history happens and psychologists jumped in. And I think Augustine has a much <laughs> better opinion on that than I could ever formulate. <laughs> and that does help us transition to Augustine Fuentes chapter. Augustine, you covered the seventh chapter in the Descent of Man, which was titled On the Races of Man. How does Darwin come off in this chapter? Unfortunately, this is where he slides right down that slope into the mud. <laughs> but it's also in this chapter, Darwin shows us how one can do science. And so it's actually a highly schizophrenic chapter because he's obviously grappling here with this notion of, well, what as a scientist is going on, but then he does end up basically falling back on his history as an Englishman in that particular time period. So I can just lay out really briefly, right? On the races of man, what Darwin really demonstrates clearly, and this was a big debate in his day, was that all humans living at his time and today are the same species. There's a big argument whether or not there was one species or multiple species. And most people thought of the different types of humans as sort of Europeans, Native Americans, Africans, and Asians. Those are ridiculous categories, but they're still in use today. So mm -hmm. we'll come back to that in a moment. But biologically, what he was able to show is clearly that all humans, no matter where they're from, are connected and are the same species. So he really did this sort of monogenous versus polygenous. That is, do humans have separate species and histories or do they have the same one? He clearly demonstrates they have the same one. And he spends a good chunk of the chapter doing that. Then he tries to explain, well, we're all the same species, but there's obviously these differences. 
And he says there's differences in height and skin color and nose shape and face form and hair type, which is true. And he seeks really hard to explain them. And what's fascinating is that he can't. He can't find a good selective reason. He can't find a good reason why these different, not why these differences are there, but why they matter, why they make any difference in the big picture of success as a human being. And then after doing all of this, he says, well, but we all know that folks derived from Africa or the African continent are less intelligent than everyone else. We all know that the primitives of South America are savage and not capable of dealing with the challenges brought by the advanced races of Europe, white folks, and that the Aborigines of Australia cannot handle any challenge because they're less evolved. And so the real problem is he ignored the incredibly rigorous science he puts down and favors at the end of the day, these travelers reports and just racist rants by random European colonists, imperialists and committers of genocide. And it's too bad because the hope of this chapter is that he's trying to gather data. He does gather a lot of data. He looks at it and then he's like, yeah, but. So this is a really good example of the dangers of science. And the bottom line of the last thing I'll say for this moment is that even to this day, white supremacists and racists refer to Darwin's chapter seven on the races of man as support for their completely inaccurate, violent and damaging to all of humanity assertions about human differences. And so this one chapter, unfortunately, you can see Darwin struggling with it, but he came out on the wrong side. And it's just unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. That is ridiculous, but sadly true as well. Now, did Darwin, did he admit that he could possibly be biased on the subject of race? No, no, he was. And I I should point this out. He was an abolitionist in the sense that he believed slavery was absolutely horrific. And he also believed that people should not, based on their race, should not be discriminated against. In the same breath that he says that, he also says that, well, but English people are much better than other people, right? Including French, for example. And so he has this whole range of sort of hierarchy. And because, as Susanna pointed out, of his commitment to an improvement model of natural selection, he must believe and does believe that his society and his culture has evolved to be better than others. And so he really does fall down on that. And he has this interesting thing where he lays out the differences of humans around and clearly shows, well, if it was natural selection explaining these differences, we would see this. He's like, well, we don't. If it was natural selection explaining these differences, we would see this. Well, sort of, we don't. And then he goes on to use examples of cultural colonialism, of disease, and a variety of other things to try to create explanations of natural selection. And they don't work very well. But he ends up unfortunately, contradicting himself and landing in a racist spot, as opposed to doing the anti-racist work that actually much of his data did. Susanna? Yeah, I think this is where it becomes really clear, I think, the difference between facts and interpretations. And we, we notice even how much of a problem that obviously was for Darwin himself. I like to take a step back and think of how hard it must have been to 
propose even the core of all the argument, which is that the status quo changes over time and species change. And how many people in European white male dominated European society, he must have pissed off. There's no other expression for this with these crazy new ideas that he had. So I think it's understandable that he would try to find concessions that he would like, for instance, that's my personal take on what seems to be his need to find a justification for diversity. It has to be improvement. And it makes sense to me because they were coming from this worldview of perfection. So if life is not perfect, designed by a perfect creator, then please at least concede us the idea that things improve over time. And of course, it goes down a very bad way and very rapidly. And I'm not trying to make excuses for Darwin in any way. It's just that I like to think of the reality of how everything that precedes us is usually taken as gospel. Look at the Constitution. The Constitution is seen pretty much as gospel these days, and proposing to revisit something is taken as an affront, as as an insult. That's what we thankfully had an opportunity to do this with the opportunity that Jeremy put together for us. We have this opportunity to exactly make sure that what Darwin wrote down is not taken as gospel or as not at least doesn't keep being taken as gospel and taken the wrong way, like Agustin was just mentioning. I'm a huge science enthusiast, and I think it's one of the main things that I love when the public gets a chance to realize that science is exactly all about change. It is a wonderful thing that we gain more knowledge, we collect new facts, and we get the opportunity to change our minds. We get the opportunity to revisit our interpretations and change our opinion, and that is beautiful. And I wish more people realize that we don't need gospel. We don't want gospel truths. We want the flexibility of being able to gather new information and change when change is needed. Jeremy and Augustine, uh, Augustine, I know you both want to add something here. We'll start with you, Jeremy. What would you like to add to that? I just want to take an even farther step back that it wasn't that Darwin couldn't think outside the box and to challenge the big ideas that were accepted in his day. In 1859, he wrote Origin of Species, he wrote one of the most controversial and now consequential and influential books ever written, challenging a lot of the ideas, scientific ideas and philosophical and religious ideas of the time. So he could think outside the box. He couldn't just take his facts and interpret them in the world in which he lived. No, he was able to expand his worldview and to think differently about ideas. And so for me, the fact that you read The Origin of Species and he pushes this idea, this away from ladder thinking of a hierarchical organization of biological organisms to tree thinking, that all living organisms today are equally evolved right? They've had their own evolutionary histories that I am as evolved as a butterfly, as a goose, as broccoli, and as my dog, right? We've all had an evolutionary history and we share common ancestry. So he got us away from thinking hierarchically and to think more in this tree-like thinking. And yet 
here he goes in chapter seven, and then he does it again at the end of the book when he's talking about sex differences, which is, again, one of these really bad chapters <laughs> and is addressed by Holly Dunsworth, where he falls back into this idea of ladder thinking, which is antithetical to his own approach to the world. So it really is amazing to me reading that chapter. And Augustine does a brilliant job of synthesizing that information and combining it with what we know today. It shows the power of bias, right? That science is the most objective way we've ever come up with to examine our world, but it's done by subjective emotional primates. <laughs> um, and so we, we make mistakes. And it's, it, it shows so clearly to me the importance of science as a self-correcting mechanism that you always go back and revisit ideas. And as Susanna was just saying, nothing is gospel, that we can challenge ideas as new evidence emerges. Uh, and not only can we, we have to. That's our job. That's our obligation. So it, it makes science a, a really humbling experience that you have to realize that your own ideas, your own data, your own interpretation of your data could very well in the coming years, decades, centuries be falsified, that you might be wrong. And you have to be okay with that. What would you like to add here, Augustine? I think it's really important. What Jeremy said is, is absolutely correct. And, and I think it's important, and I note this at the end of the chapter, if Darwin was writing this chapter today, he would clearly and unequivocally say there are no biological races in human. Racism has biological harms and is damaging to human existence and be an anti-racist activist almost just because the data are so powerful and so clear. And he was a great scientist. So I think that's very important. But the thing I do want to sort of point out, sort of going back to the early context and to talk about the biases, is that it's unfortunate because Darwin, when it came to sex, gender and race, had these biases that were deep. And in fact, he could have gone against that. He could have, because he did with his earlier book, The Origin of Species, he bucked everyone. He was like, no, you guys are all wrong. Here's the evidence. And he didn't do it this time. He could have, because there were plenty of people around his time. Everyone says, oh, it's that time. Everyone was believing the same thing. No, no, no. There were plenty of people saying, look, this is wrong. Race isn't wrong. These races are not biological units. But the most depressing thing is that from the first edition to the second edition of Descent of Man, he got worse. He actually, the chapter gets much worse. And it's, it's like he's doubling down on this as he gets older and crankier. I, I don't know what happened, but it was unfortunate because it just shows how strong these cultural, historical, and individual experiential biases are. He knew, he wrote in his own diary during the, the travel as a young man on the Beagle, he wrote how impressed he was with all these Fuegians and these uh, indigenous peoples in, in Southern South America, how incredible and how human and how connected they were. And at the same time, how they were just not as advanced, how they were so different and less sort of capable of being human than he was. And so the biases, he as a scientist saw the reality and his biases filtered that information and created this outcome that was racist. But now we know we have the data, we have the evidence. And so revisiting Darwin now shows us hope, right? That this methodology, this engagement actually can make a difference and we can change the world through science. We just have to really check ourselves and check others regularly and, and remember that we're just humans doing this and work together. The whole idea that only one person contributes all the knowledge in the world and that one person we go to, that's just not true. Yeah, that's ludicrous. Now, you just said that unlike 150 years ago, if 
Darwin were studying science and writing about it in the modern day, he would believe that there is not a biological basis in race, which is a point that you articulate very well in this book. But hasn't the decoding of the human genome during this century shown a even slim biological basis for race? I mean, scientists no. can... It has not. No. So scientists... Absolutely not. So scientists can look... No, the Human Genome Project clearly demonstrates this. Contemporary human genomic variation clearly demonstrates this. And that's why I say Darwin would be an anti-racist at this point, because the data are so overwhelming that there is no such thing as a genetic or biological cluster that is continental, such as African, Europe, Asia. Asia is not even a continent. That's two thirds of the planet and Native American. The genomic patterns and processes do not divide humans into black, white, yellow, red, what have you. So that's absolutely clear. Now, there's huge genetic variation in humans. There's huge morphological variation. There's tons of differences between populations around. They're just not racial. And that's the really important. There are no races in humans. There's only one, Homo sapiens sapiens. But there's a lot of variation, and it maps in very interesting ways. It's just the contemporary world. We're so blinded, as Darwin was, to this belief that the data show these differences when the data themselves absolutely unequivocally do not. Susanna, I see that you want to chime in, uh, but give me just a second here because I, I do want some clarification on something because geneticists can look at a biracial human's genome and assign each segment into African or European ancestry. And you can look at uh, the ge genetic makeup of an individual and see whether or not that person is more predisposed to certain diseases. But that is not okay. evidence well of that's not evidence of race. Okay. So let me tell you, the first statement you made is not a scientific statement, right? The way ancestry testing or geneticist takes my DNA or your DNA or anyone's DNA and says, oh, well, you're this percentage European, you're this percentage African, is basically genetic similarity. We sample a bunch of populations around the world, and then we take your DNA and we compare it to those populations. Now, today, all of this ancestry testing is dramatically over European. That is, there are many more reference samples in Europe, and there are very few reference samples in Africa, right? So yes, you can tell some aspect of someone's genetic heritage via their DNA, but that doesn't mean that Africa is a unit. In fact, Sub-Saharan Africa has more genetic variation and more differences between groups and populations there than the rest of the world combined. All of the rest of the world's genetic variation is a subset of Sub-Saharan Africa. So comparing genetically, scientifically, comparing Africa to Europe is actually a nonsensical comparison. So there's a lot more to go on. And the fact that diseases, there are no diseases that are clearly racially based. That is sickle cell anemia, these sickle cell diseases, which in the United States is associated with a black thing. Actually, those diseases, that genetic variant shows up in some African populations, in some circumediterranean populations, in many South Asian populations, and in some populations on the Arabian Peninsula. There's nothing, there's not a single gene that is unique to these categories of black, white, Asian, African, European, Asian. So even though like MS is something that Europeans are more predisposed to getting because other groups can still get MS, albeit at a lesser rate, that shows that it's not something absolute. Therefore, there is no biological basis. Absolutely. And it's actually no biological basis for race. Right. Okay. So MS shows up in higher frequencies, in particular, Northwestern European populations. So MS does not show up very high in circumediterranean populations or Eastern European populations. So even that category of Europe is problematic. 
Susanna, I appreciate your patience there. What would you like to add to this? It's the category thing that is the key word here. We are very good. And it's not just we humans. It's we vertebrates with the brain, with the circuitry that we have. We're very good at creating categories. We take variation and we chunk it into these fantasy clusters, these fantasy groups. And as long as you live within at the center of that group, it's very easy to look around you and think, oh, yeah, we're all alike, of course. So let's give a name to our group. And that's the group of white people. That's the group of Europeans. That's the group of this and that. But as soon as you walk away from that center, you realize that what the world is really like, what the biological world is really like, is a spectrum. It's a continuum of variation. And the farther you walk away from the people who look exactly like you, the more difficulty you will find in keeping those clusters separated. And I think that's the issue here. You're both talking about something that obviously exists. It's variation. But the question is, how legitimate is it to create these neat lines like country limits around a certain part of that range of variation. And the point is, it's not legitimate because what we have is simply variation. And yeah, you will have these spatial patterns in uh, what kinds of variations you find more often here and there. And it happens so that at extremes, just like you can look at a dog and say, this is not a cat, you can look at a person and say, oh, their skin is very dark and my skin is very light. But at some point there is there or at least there was an in between. So it's all a spectrum. And the same problem that we have with races actually applies to species. And it's a fascinating discussion, but it's a whole other topic. But the point is, even the concept of species, like the concept of races, is something that we create because that's how our mind works with these categories, with these neat categories that are pure fantasy. Jeremy, would you like to add something here? Again, this is where Darwin's biases are exposed, where he, again, more than any other thinker at the time, was breaking down these ideas of categories and thinking about continuum, continuous traits, and thinking about, again, an origin of species. He talks a lot about how species is a difficult concept to define and that the evolution of species requires extinction of the common ancestor, of the intermediate. And that's how you get these isolated populations. So he was thinking a lot about variation. He even wrote a book in, in 1868 on the variation of domesticated plants and animals. So he was thinking a lot about variation and about continuous traits. And then he couldn't apply it here. He had an opportunity, he had the data to apply it, and he couldn't do it. So it really, again, exposes what Augustine's talking about are these biases that he had as a privileged, rich Englishman, white male privileged individual, who with these data had an opportunity to interpret them the way we do now and fails. And again, that's where science as a self-correcting enterprise comes in, that we don't revere and idolize the words of Darwin, we challenge them. And we say places where, hey, he got this right, this amazing, that he was able to recognize, for instance, that, that the earliest human fossils would be found in Africa. 
I mean, that was spot on. He didn't have any fossils and he was able to recognize that. And we know that today, we got thousands of them from Africa. And yet he also made these mistakes and it's our job 150 years later to call him on it. And I think he would say the same. I guess the reason why I am less afraid to acknowledge differences in races, Augustine, is because I don't necessarily come at this from the standpoint of believing that one is better than the other. I'm somebody who for a long time has been trying to spread this idea that we'll actually be better off if rather than trying to ignore our differences, we embrace those differences And as soon as we can actually truly embrace our differences as individuals, whether it's height, whether it's hair color, whether it's body type, whether it's race, whatever else, that we will all be much better off. Well, I mean, I agree, Trey, in one sense that everything you just mentioned, height, hair color, body type, face form, nose shape, all those things are actually not, they don't define any race in humanity. So the bottom line here is that race is a social, historical, political reality, right? It matters if you're black or white or Latino when you walk down the street in the United States, right? And there are differences and those are important and we need to understand those patterns, but they don't come from biology. Race is not originated or driven by different biological lineages or biological processes and patterns in humans. Race comes from racism and uh, colonialism and empire that divided up people and imposed upon that assumptions about biology that are incorrect. So no, races are real, right? But they're not biological. And that's the hard part, but that's what's really important because if we understand that, then we're like, okay, everything you just said about getting along, about understanding difference, about trying to work together, that's what we need to be doing. But if people think that race comes from biology, comes from evolutionary distinctions, then racism is justified in their mind and then it's dangerous. Okay, I'm going to save a question I was planning on asking because we're a few minutes over. So you'll just have to read the book to find out what Augustine thinks on whether or not Darwin was racist. It's a fantastic answer. Plenty of great reasons to read this book, that one included. I wanted to end today's conversation with this, and I'm going to ask each of you this question, starting with you, Susanna. What did Darwin get most right in The Descent of Man? That things change, but not so much that we humans ever stopped being primates. We are primates like other primates are. We are just one quantitative variation of what other animals are like. We are just a bunch of damn dirty apes. Augustine, how about you? Darwin got right the need to understand what data are available to understand what that data look like when you lay them out and to think really hard about what you can infer and what you can infer, right? And so we talked about the places he fell down, but in everything that Darwin wrote, he was meticulous about trying to say what's out there and what can I do with it? And that's good science. And most people don't recognize how long Darwin spent doing this stuff. He wrote the giant three volume series on barnacles and it took him six years, right? Probably no one cares about that series, but he took the time to really do the hard work of science. Science is not flashy. Most of it's really boring, but it's extremely important. And Darwin shows us why. And Jeremy, how about you? What did Darwin get most right in The Descent of Man? 
that understanding human origins and evolution was something that we humans can pull off. We are the only species on the planet that actually asks these kinds of questions of where did we come from? And it's a remarkable question and it's kind of an arrogant question, right? To think that you can actually know where you came from as a species, given the millions of years of evolutionary history behind us. And he, and there were others before him, but he laid out this case that these questions that we're asking, that we're still asking today of who are we and where do we come from and why are we the way we are, that these are questions that can be answered with evidence through the lens of science. And he didn't have the DNA and the fossil and a lot of the comparative anatomy and a lot of the embryological evidence that we have today. I dream about being able to show Darwin an Australopithecus. Like he would have lost his mind. He'd be like, this is incredible. An upright walking ape with a relatively small brain and big teeth with maybe some stone tool making capabilities. Oh, he would have lost his mind. I think he would have been thrilled at this. And so to me, the value of this book, the legacy of Darwin is this idea that we can understand ourselves and where we came from and we continue to do it. They are Jeremy De Silva, Susana Herculano Huzel, and Augustine Fuentes. The book, A Most Interesting Problem, What Darwin's Descent of Man Got Right and Wrong About Human Evolution. Jeremy edited the book, while Susana and Augustine each contributed a chapter. Thank you all so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Thanks, Trey. And thanks to you for listening. Check out booksonpod.com for all of our episodes and to link to subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.